uh, it was good to have Paul and his family here for the last two weeks, and they got off this past week uh, and got home just fine. I want to thank everyone for your love for them and for the ministry that they uh, that they have in uh, in Indonesia and Papua, and for the <clears throat> for the good love offering that you gave over the two weeks they were here totaled a little over $2,300, so that was such a blessing and did certainly certainly paid for the trip that they made here, and uh, so it's good to be a blessing. Uh, also today, we're pleased to have uh, Brother uh, Dan Sim and his wife Crystal and family with us. They're missionaries in Lebanon, and I was just talking with uh, Dan, raise your hand there so people can see who you are. Um, just talking with them before the service, and uh, we have a mutual acquaintance that a uh, missionary friend uh, and actually a, a national Lebanese man who was ministering in Australia when we were there back in the 80s, and uh, he left Australia, went back to Lebanon, to Beirut, to pastor a church there, and his name was Abdu Isa. And uh, we know we know Abdu uh, together. So it's amazing how small the world is uh, when you go places. You meet people who you knew or have known uh, in various parts of the world. So Dan, glad to you're here today. God bless you. This has been a very uh, eventful week. Uh, we've tried to follow. We've tried to follow the. Uh, the news closely. Uh, I have been both joyful and sorrowful this past week as as we have spoken earlier about the overturning of Roe versus Wade and uh, the many the many thousands and thousands of innocent lives that have been taken and and women's health issues in those abortions that have taken place. You don't hear anything about that, do you? The complications. So I read an article just yesterday of a, of a pastor who claims to be uh, pro-choice, and said he would continue to fight for pro-choice and women's health, which is a uh, which is a straw man, really, in this whole issue. Um, people, uh, pastors like that need to be saved. What can I say else than that? No Christian would be for the taking of innocent life. We've stood on that platform for many years, and we will continue to stand on it. Our state will be one of those where people can come and have abortions done. And that's a tragedy. We need to pray that God will change the minds and the hearts of our politicians and do away with this crime against God's creation in our state. And so... I hope you can see that we're rather passionate about this. And we have been and we always will be. All right, turn with me to Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 2. 
I'm going back to John. I really am. But uh, as we have been in these uh, last few weeks in Ephesians, then Paul chose verses uh, 15 to 17 for his text. Uh, I'm going to go this morning a little bit further in this, and this will probably be the last week because I'll go back to John 4 next week. But this is uh, this is such a such a wonderful passage for us as believers in Christ who have been redeemed by His blood and bought with the price that God paid for our salvation. This this is a passage that gives us such depth and clarity of what God has given to us and and who God is to us. Uh, so follow with me as we read verses uh, 18. And let's go back to 17. I'm going to mention some things in 17 that were a little different than what Paul mentioned. This is the beauty of Scripture. You, one person can preach from a passage and then another comes along and preaches from the same passage and you get something different. Beginning in verse 17. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us, who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet. And gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Let's pray. Father, we do pray this morning that your spirit would so empower your word that it would reach into our hearts and stir us up. Cause us to reflect upon the great work that you have done in Christ. On our behalf, we pray, Lord, that you would be glorified. In Jesus' name, amen. Paul commends the Ephesians for their faith and for their love. I think about that sometimes when I think about Bethany Bible Church and what, what is the legacy of this Body, this body of Christ, that this local body that Christ has put together here. What, what would the, what would the Apostle Paul say about Bethany Bible if he were, if he knew us and he knew about us and he got reports from us? What would he say? Would he commend us for our faith? And would he commend us for our love? I think he would certainly commend us for our love. I've witnessed it over the years here. Very loving body. We love each other. We love people. We love Christ. We love the Bible. 
We love gospel ministry. Jesus said, when he comes, will the Son of Man find faith on the earth? I trust that our faith is growing. I think it certainly has in many cases. As a church, as a whole, is our faith continuing? Is it growing? Is it multiplying? Is it amplifying? His commendation here on their faith is a very interesting phrase when he talks about, in verse 15, your faith, for this reason, because I heard of your faith. Literally, it says, the down among you faith. That's what it says, literally. The faith that is down among you, where you live. What does that look like? He's not talking about our faith as, as from when we became believers and we believed, that's not what he's talking about. He's talking about the faith that operates day to day, week to week, in and out, among us, down where we live. Does your faith operate outside of these walls where you live? He commends them for that because he heard of their faith among Where they lived. And that's what we want. We want our faith, the working of our faith, our following of Christ to be in the world where people live and where we can, where they see it. Then he compliments their love. The love that was exhibited towards All the saints, and Paul made the statement when he was here in this passage, that Christians cannot choose who to love in the body of Christ. We're commanded to love all believers. That does not mean we agree with all believers. Some are mixed up in doctrines that that are not biblical. But those, but if those people truly know the Lord, we, we must love them and we must pray that they would be led into truth. <clears throat> so beginning in verse 16, he, there, he talks about the, the character, we see the characteristics of Paul's prayer. In verse 17, he addresses his prayer to God the Father, which is the way we always should pray. We always address our prayers to the Father. Jesus taught us to pray that way. When you pray, say, Our Father, who are who, who is in heaven. Second, Paul's prayer was continual. He says here and elsewhere that he prays without ceasing. In other words, that doesn't mean that every waking moment of his life he was praying for these people, but it does mean that he was praying for them continually all the time as the Spirit of God brought them to his memory. Oftentimes I'll be sitting, studying, or I'll be driving somewhere, or I'll be doing something, and I'll think of something, and I'm thinking, God, you you gave me that thought so I could pray for that people. Sometimes it's the Korowai tribe. Sometimes it's the Agape home in India. Sometimes it's you who come to my memory. 
When something comes to your memory, take it as a prompt that the Spirit of God wants you to pray. You may not know what to pray for certain individuals or people, but you can pray that God's will and God's grace would be theirs. Paul prays his prayer includes thanksgiving for the saints at Ephesus. We should be so thankful for other believers. It is it is such a rare commodity to find like precious faith among other people in the world. And we need to be thankful for that. Paul was thankful. And finally, Paul's prayer was a petition that the Ephesian saints would come to a deeper, fuller grasp of the truth that God had revealed to him and in Scripture. So his prayer has moves from a general prayer to very specific prayer in verse verses 17 and following. The prayer for wisdom... A spirit of wisdom and revelation, the prayer of the eyes being opened and enlightened, their hearts would be enlightened, and the prayer that they may understand the hope of his calling, the glory of his inheritance to the saints, and the surpassing greatness of his power. This is a great prayer that you can pray for any people. Now let's back up and look at these things a little, a little bit closer. I'm going to just sort of skim verse 17 because Paul preached an excellent message on that passage. But I'm going to bring some, out a couple of things here that, that, that uh, bring us into verse 18, where is, is where I really want to center on this morning. So in verse 17, he is praying that God might give the Ephesians the spirit of wisdom and revelation, literally in order that they may know him better. That's the goal. To know Christ more. To know him better. Think of it in relation to the way you know your family or your friends. The more you're with them, the more you get to know them, the more you understand about them, what makes them tick, what they like and what they don't like, their pursuits, their desires. This is the way Paul wanted the Ephesians to know Christ. And then in verses 18 and 19, he is praying then that their hearts would be enlightened so that they would know the hope that he they the hope that they had been called to and that hope centers itself in the riches that come with salvation in Christ so he prays for wisdom and revelation in three there are three ways Quoting J.I. Packer, there are three elements in knowing God this way, from verse 17. First, knowing God is a matter of personal dealing. We deal 
with God in certain ways as his children. He is our father. We are his offspring. This matter, uh, in this matter of dealing, he opens up himself to us. He brings to us the knowledge of himself. We deal with him this way. So I might ask the question, does God deal with you in a personal way? Do you find yourself delighting in him as he opens up his word to you? Do you find yourself falling on his mercy as you confess your sins day to day and seek his fellowship? It is a matter of personal dealing. Second, knowing God is a matter of personal involvement. We're talking about the mind, the will, the feeling. The believer rejoices when his God is honored and vindicated. And he feels the acutest distress when God is scorned or ridiculed. That's why we choose not to go to movies where God's name is going to be blasphemed over and over again. Because it cuts, it cuts us to the heart when we hear that. They're talking about my God when they use his name like that. Equally, the Christian feels a sense of shame and conviction when we fail our Lord. Do you feel that? Third, knowing God is a matter of personal grace. It is a relationship. Get this now. It is a relationship where God is the initiator and completer of your salvation. Not only does he initiate it. You didn't have anything to do with initiating it. You were dead. He initiated it. He brought you to life. And he completes it. The psalmist said it best. I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined his ear to me and heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction out of the miry bog. He set my feet upon the rock, making my steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to, my, to our God. Many shall see it in fear and put their trust in the Lord. Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust and who does not turn to the proud, to those who go astray after a lie. You have multiplied Applied, O Lord my God, your wondrous deeds and your thoughts toward us. None can compare with you. I will proclaim you and tell of, tell of you, yet they are more than can be told. A spirit of wisdom, a spirit of revelation, a spirit of systematic knowledge, of growing in Christ. Peter said it. Grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. To Him be glory both now and forever. 
That brings us to verse 18. And this is the second part of Paul's prayer here in the latter part of verse of chapter 1. The second time Paul prays for knowledge for the Ephesians, he shifts his focus. Beginning in verse 18, he begins to look at the scope of salvation. Now I want to say a word about that because... I think we sometimes, we talk about our salvation so flippantly. We say, oh yes, I'm saved. And we don't, we don't consider what it means to say, I'm saved. I've been saved. I used to say that when I first got saved. When I first became a Christian, I would say that to people, particularly the guys that I worked with in, in the Air Force. And uh, I would say, uh, I got saved. And they would say, saved from what? Well, I didn't really know how to answer that. But let me tell you, it's saved from everything. Saved from everything. Myself, the world, the flesh, the devil, hell. I'm saved from everything. But what does that look like? How can we put that... How can we formulate that phrase into a a picture of what makes us saved? Well, he tells us here. And so he turns from this general to the specific. And notice the first sentence of verse 18. Having... The eyes of your understanding being enlightened. Your hearts being enlightened. Now in most cultures, modern cultures that is, the heart and the mind is thought of as the seat of emotions and feeling. But in ancient cultures, such as the Hebrews and Greeks, And ancient cultures like that, the heart or mind was considered to be the center of knowledge, understanding, thinking, and wisdom. It's used that way in the New Testament as well. The heart and mind, being synonymous, was considered to be the seat of thinking. And will. You remember a few days ago I said that uh, the will of man is, is never what's, what orders his life. It's his heart that orders his life. And will comes from the heart. And it only operates and works within the realm that it is existing. That's why the unbeliever can only will to do evil and sin. That's all he can do. Because that's where he lives. That's where he's, that's his sphere of life. But when a person becomes a believer, when they're saved by the grace of God, they enter a new sphere of life. Now they are living with a, <laughs> with a heart that has been regenerated, and now they can will to choose for God and for good and for right and for righteousness and holiness, where before they could not. They were imprisoned 
in that heart that knew nothing of the grace of God and the freedom that's in Christ. And so Paul brings this out here. Emotions and feelings in the ancient cultures were not considered a part of the heart or the mind. They were considered a part of the of the gut, the the stomach, the intestines, the inner organs. You, You know how this feels when you hear news that is devastating or tragic and you feel it where? Up here? No, you feel it here. Down in your gut. That's why we have these phrases. Oh, I've, I have. I just had this gut feeling. That's my stomach turned flips. First John three seventeen. Turn with me to First John three seventeen, will you? Will you? <clears throat> He talks about this here. John uses this particular uh, particular word in in this uh, passage. <clears throat> Notice what he says. But if anyone has the world's goods. And sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him. How does God's love abide in him? So he asked this question, this, this question that should bring about a response that says, well, if someone sees somebody in need and their heart's not moved, then they don't have the love of God. That's the answer to the question. But notice the word heart. It is not the word cardia. That's the normal word for the heart or that which beats within our chest. Here is the word splagnon. And it, the word splagnon means the inner organs, the liver, the bowels, the stomach. All those organs that are, that make up our inner person physically that's what's moved when someone sees someone in need they're moved here not here the knowledge of that has to happen and then this happens and that's what Paul is saying one of the problems of the Corinthian church was that they relied too much on their feelings And not enough on the knowledge that God had given them. That's a problem today. Still a problem. Many believers are more interested in doing what felt right. Rather than what God said was right. I meet people like this all the time. You show them scripture and they say, I just don't feel like that that's right. I just don't feel like I should do that. I don't feel like he should have done that. It makes no difference how a person feels. What, what, the, what makes a difference is what God says. And when, get the formula. When you do 
what God says, when you're obedient to what God says, you trust that the feelings will follow that. Not the other way around. You rely on your feelings, your feelings, your heart is deceptive, it's wicked, it will lead you in the wrong direction. Our feelings must be based upon the objective truth of God's word. No matter how we feel, what does God say? Paul writes to the Corinthian church and he says this, We have spoken freely to you, Corinthians. Our heart, our heart is wide open. You are not restricted by us. But you are restricted by your own affections. Same word. Same word that John used. You're, you're, you're affected. You're restricted by your own feelings. They would not let go of their feelings to simply trust God and do what He said. Sound familiar? So God, so Paul prays for the minds of the Ephesians. He prays for their hearts and their minds to be enlightened. Listen, emotions, our emotions are a significant part of our makeup. God created us with emotions, strong emotions. But those emotions are only as reliable as they are controlled by truth. And so he wants us to understand that. And so he makes three prayer requests to God the Father with relation to this, these issues. Notice the three. First, Paul's prayer is a request for understanding the hope of his calling, the hope of God's calling. He wants us to understand the hope that lies in God's call. So he prays for God to enlighten the Ephesians and us. He prays that God would enlighten them about the magnificent truths that he has given to them in verses 3 through 14. And what are those truths? They are truths about salvation. Listen, everything that we have with relation to God funnels back into salvation. We are what we are because of God's salvation. We will be in eternity what we will be because of God's salvation. Salvation is the main thing. And so he prays that they will be enlightened as to these truths. And so those truths, in verses 3 through 14 summarize God's master plan of redemption for mankind. His eternal plan to bring men back to himself through the sacrifice of his own son and thereby make men his children through adoption. (coughs) Excuse me. 
In this phrase, notice in verse 18, he links the words hope and call together. That is significant. In scripture, the word hope usually, usually has to do with the last, with last, the last things or to the completion of that which has already been started. It looks to the future. Hope looks to the future. God saved us in the past, and now He gives us hope for the future. Where? In His call. God has called us to Himself through the gospel. And so by linking the idea of God's call and hope, Paul is saying that the calling of God, which is, which he's been talking about extensively in the opening part of that, this chapter, that call is contextualized. God has not called us into a fog. We're not, his, his call is not shrouded in smoke so that we are wandering around. Well, God called me, but I don't know to what. <clears throat> no. It's clearly stated. God has called us into the, into the knowledge of what He has done for us in Christ, what He has given to us in Christ, and what He will give to us in Christ in the future eternity. <clears throat> so that all points the calling the hope of his calling points to the future it looks to that eventual destiny that he had in mind for us when he decreed to call us in eternity past and he's carrying it out and he will carry it out it includes the fact Understand this, it includes the fact that we will be with Christ and we will be like Christ. 1 John 3 verse 2. Once we really understand the hope of his calling, it changes dramatically, transforms how we look at this world, how we look at sin, how we look at other people when we understand His calling and the hope that lies before us. What does that, what does that look like? Well, it, it's, uh, it's a living hope. Peter says that we've been called to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. It is a blessed hope, Paul says to Titus, uh, waiting for our blessed hope and the appearing of, uh, of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. It is a sure hope, according to Hebrews 6, verses 10 and 11. We desire each of you should show the same earnestness and to have full assurance of hope. He wants us to have full assurance. Because it's in that assurance... And that trust in what God has said to us and promised us that we have the boldness to declare His Word and stand for His truth. Paul's second prayer request for understanding 
of the Ephesians was that they might understand the riches of the glory of the inheritance, his inheritance to the saints. <clears throat> Do you realize? Now, how many times have you ever said this? Well, if I had a million dollars, this is what I'd do. You know, I think it's a natural thing that everybody wants to be rich. If you're rich, you can do all sorts of things. We sometimes daydream about it. Oh, if I had millions of dollars, this is what I'd do. I'd, I'd, boy, the missionaries wouldn't suffer and uh, my family wouldn't have any problems. And, you know, we list the things we'd do if we, if we had lots and lots of money, if we were rich. But there are Christians, my friends, everywhere who've been saved by the grace of God and they're rich and they don't know it. They don't know that they are. They have no idea what God has promised them. Primarily because they haven't studied His Word. They haven't haven't digged in and found out. That's what Paul wants these Ephesians to understand. That the inheritance... He talks about here in the context is inheritance that is given to us in Christ. Well, what does that make us? That makes us wealthy. We are all firstborn sons to God and we inherit everything that Christ has. Everything. You say, well, how much is that? It's the entire universe and everything in it. And all of the spiritual blessings on top of it. Actually, the spiritual blessings come first. Giving thanks to God the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light, Paul says to the, to the Colossians. So first, the emphasis is on the hope of his calling, which is a certain thing. And second, the emphasis is upon riches. And that's the scope of God's blessings to us. Blessings that we know so little about because we don't spend enough time uh, meditating on them. Paul said to the Corinthians, we see, now we see in a mirror dimly, but then we see face to face. We know in part now, but then we will know fully as we are known. In other words, when we, when we stand before Christ and we see Him face to face, and we're with Him in a body that is completely rid of sin and time and corruption, and all that there is is us and Christ, then we'll understand the fullness of our inheritance. But what do we do in the meantime? Notice what he says here. He piles words upon words. Paul cannot come up with enough words to really describe all of the goodness that God has given us in Christ in salvation. He He says it's his inheritance. And then his inheritance in the saints. And then the glory of his inheritance in the saints. And then the riches of his glory In his inheritance to the saints. I mean, just keeps piling words on top. Because there's not enough superlatives in the language to describe it fully. And even today there's not enough. Christian, right now you and me, we're living in between God's calling 
and the fullness of our inheritance. We're right in between. God has called us and we, we know that. He's made us His own. And we're looking, we're hoping, we, we, we believe and we're hope, in hope that we'll have this inheritance fully given to us one day. But right now we're in, caught in between it. So what do we do with that? <clears throat> the third prayer that request for understanding is that we would understand the exceeding greatness of his power to us who believe. Here's the in-between part. We live in the here and now, in the present, and the question for the present is, how do we live as citizens of heaven, according to Philippians 3.20, as citizens of heaven and not citizens of, of this world, how do we live in this world which does not which does not acknowledge the sovereignty of God, how do we live in this world since we're citizens of a foreign place to the world? Well, Paul's answer is to know God's power by experience. I don't mean some kind of, some kind of flitty, floating magic that, that says you're able to speak things and make things happen. That's not what I'm talking about. That's not biblical anyway. I'm talking about real power working through us to live as citizens of heaven in a sinful, fallen world that does not know God. How do we do that? Well, Paul gives us the answer. Notice what he says. <clears throat> he says he says here in verse 19, And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead, seated him at his right hand in heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, every name that's named in this age and the age to come. That's This is the answer here. He gives, us, gives it to us in four words, four words that are synonyms that cover the scope of how to live in a sinful world as citizens of heaven. As ambassadors, and yet not of this world. Jesus said, you are not of the world. Notice the first one. The first word here he uses is the word dunamis, which is the word for power. <clears throat> it's, the word, it's the Greek word where we get our, our English word dynamite, dynamo. Dynamite is very powerful. It can be used to explode things. That word is used a hundred to over a hundred times in the New Testament, and it speaks of raw power, power that is naturally inherent. Well, where does this raw, naturally inherent power come from? It comes from the Spirit of God working in us. The power is only 
for Christian people. It is only for those who believe. Not only that, but this power is given to us and we have all of it that we could ever have in full measure when we come into God's family through faith in Christ. He gives it to us. We learn how to use the power that God has given us as we grow in grace and knowledge through His Word. The surpassing greatness of God's power has been given to every believer. But it is not a power that's given for us to use flippantly like Simon Mangos of Acts chapter 8 wanted to purchase from Peter. Remember that? Peter said, you perish with your... You don't want it for the right reason. What do we want it for? We want it so we can live and overcome in this world. So we can make much of Christ. So we can glorify Christ. The second word is the word working in the text. The energizing force of the Spirit. It's the word energia. It means uh, energy. You ever look at little kids running around and you say, boy, if I wish I had that kind of energy. Seems like their batteries just don't run down. You know? Well, this is the energy. It is the spiritual empowerment to live for Christ no matter what. It is an inner propulsion. It is the closest thing you will ever find to perpetual motion and energy. It has, no ex, it has no external source. It comes from the Holy Spirit who lives in us. Third is the word kratos, strength. Which can also be interpreted by the words dominion and power. Like I said, these are all synonyms. They work together. I'll tie this up here in a second. Uh, kratos, strength, is the ability to control things. The ability to determine or govern Something. God is governing His creation. We, we live in the world and we face the things that the world throws at us with God's power, trusting that God has already put it into motion and that He is controlling it. Nothing happens outside of that. Nothing. Number four is the word iskus, capability. According to the working of his great might. Great might. This is awesome strength and ability to make to come to pass that which he has decreed. He's capable of overcoming everything. Sin, death, and creating faith to save and live by. So here it is. All the power. All these words that he uses. Verse 19. They're all for us. They all, Paul wants us to understand. God wants us to, to understand. That he has empowered us. He is with us. We can overcome anything. And even death itself cannot stop. What God can do through us. It is 
All the energy by which we live and continue. All of our life functions in this world with all of the ability to overcome the world, the flesh, and the devil. And it's all found in Christ. It's all found in Jesus. And our relationship to him through his grace. He is all and in all. That's the formula for victory. Even when the world says that doesn't look like victory. Think of all the people who have given their lives in service for Christ. Some some died naturally over years. Some were martyred. Others from disease. And yet they are all victors in Christ. And we are too. Because of His grace. Because of what He has given us in our salvation. Let's take that with us this week. And use it for His glory out there in that foreign world that we live in. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you. We thank you for we thank you for the salvation that you have given us in Christ and truly all of our life revolves around this great salvation that you have given to us. I pray Lord that you would bless This church, I pray that you would strengthen your people with this great might that you have given to us in Christ. I pray that we would stand for him and for right and for truth and for decency. I pray that in this world where we are seen as something strange and foreign, something to be shunned by the world, I pray, Lord, that you would open the hearts of many as they see our love for you and our love for people. I pray that you would save the lost, our family members, our friends. I pray, Lord, that you would be with our missionaries as they go to foreign places and Speak your truth in your gospel and, and people are, their eyes and their minds and their hearts are opened. I pray, Lord, all these things. Because you have given us a great gift. A gift that will, has secured our eternity with you. Make us thankful. Make us generous. Make us loving. Increase our faith to live for you and to honor you. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. To Scott, if you'll come back, please. There are no announcements. Um, not going to be many announcements now for the summer.